Okay, my that sounds right. Well, greetings to one and all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And uh, it is a privilege to be asked to speak again in Pastor Gary's absence. So um, let's commit the time to the Lord before we go into the Word. We thank you, Lord, for your Word. It is a wonderful and a mighty thing. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the intents and the thoughts of the hearts. Lord, I just pray this morning, Lord, that that would be the result, Lord, that we would have our intentions, Lord, discerned, Lord, or, Lord, that we would be separated, Lord, between spirit and, and flesh, Lord, and that uh, we'd see you, Lord. Most importantly, Lord, is that we, we see you this morning, Lord, that um, you're the centre, Lord, of everything that's said and goes forth, Lord. So we commit it all unto you, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I've been struggling with a cold this week, so <clears throat> hopefully my voice will not give out. So I wanted to um, speak this morning on Psalm 2, and I've called the message, Who Are You Trusting In? Now, I've heard many uh, sermons preached on Psalm 2 over the years, uh, some very excellent ones, and I particularly like Brother um, Bill Randall's because of the gift he has really to bring scripture to life in the context of present day events. So um, I've certainly heard him speak on Psalm 2 and been very, very blessed by it. So I want to have a look at Psalm 2 this morning and, and see what we can um, draw out of it. It is a, um, a wonderful Psalm of the Lord and uh, there's very, very much we can glean from it. Much riches there are in Psalm 2, I have to say, having spent a bit of time preparing for this morning. And it's interesting, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 line together, they, they've got different emphasis and uh, it's quite interesting to look at them. Psalm 1 is talking about the, uh, the godly man. The godly man who doesn't trust in the counsel of the ungodly or walk in the, the paths of the wicked. Whereas Psalm 2 is directed at the ungodly and at the lost world or the heathen. And, uh, but it's interesting, the conclusions are quite similar. An encouragement to trust in the Lord. It's a messianic psalm, and it's one I believe should be a very strong encouragement to believers. And also, equally, it should serve as a warning to those who reject Jesus. So, a little bit of an introduction there. Psalm 2 is written by David, and we know that because it's referenced in Acts 4, verse 25. It gives the author as David. And another piece of information on Psalm 2 it's the most quoted psalm in elsewhere in Scripture. So it's, uh, it's important, there's a lot to be said there. Now we could say that reading Psalm 2, it has an application in David's time and for the world in his time. Like many scriptures, that's the case. But prophetically it extends to the present day and goes further, goes to the time of the millennial reign of Jesus. So it stands out then as, some, as a very strong word on the supremacy of God, his dominion and the reign of his son. And we get a very good idea when we delve into the psalm of the relationship between the Son 
and the Father. In fact, we get a glimpse into the Godhead. So we'll look at that a little bit closer shortly. So a very, very powerful, very wonderful psalm. And I suspect Jesus would have read this psalm because the five books of Psalms were in existence when Jesus was on earth. They're part of the, our present-day Old Testament. And they were the books of praise or the, song, the books of songs of praise of, for the, um, the, uh, the people of Israel at that time. So it's um, interesting, interesting to, to know that. So I want to just start by reading Psalm 2 aloud. It says in, the, in the, um, the studies that the psalm should be proclaimed aloud. So let's have a look at Psalm 2. It starts in verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare to the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heed for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Now if you look at that a little bit closer, there are three parties speaking in the psalm. Verses 1 to 3, David is commenting on the turmoil, the raging nations, the the pending situation in his time. Something we can do nowadays as well. Talk about the, the chaos there is in the world. In verses 4 to 6, the father gives his response prophetically through the mouth of David. So the father speaks. In verse 7 to 9, the son, Messiah, speaks prophetically again through the, the voice of David. And then the psalm concludes in verses 10 to 12 with David giving some words of advice or, or wisdom. I've often pondered on the mystery of iniquity as it's referenced in the Bible and um, why there is evil, why Satan came to be the way he is, you know, the leader of praise and worship, the most beautiful being, how he fell and why he came to be the way he is. And um, this mystery, this ongoing iniquity that's going on in the world, the, the, the battle the hidden spiritual realm and the strife and the, uh, the turmoil that's going on and the manipulation in the background that we don't see with the human eye. And um, it's interesting to dwell on it. And it has its ultimate conclusion in the Antichrist when the lawless one is revealed. And uh, it's good scripture and we reference it many times to so have a look at Ephesians 6 verse 12 because it says therefore we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, ultimately, Satan is the author of rebellion, and we were his subjects. And I've often said here before, we sit in one or two places 
We're either in the realm of darkness or we're in the realm of light. There's no in between. A lot of people delude themselves by saying they're, they're free thinkers, thinkers or, or um, atheists or whatever. They think they don't fall in, under either camp. They think that they stand on their own. There's only one or two places you stand. It's either in his realm or in the realm of the king, the Lord Jesus. So, so he's the order of rebellion. And we were in his dominion. Some people don't like to use the word kingdom. I won't use that. His dominion or his realm, however, however you want to call it. Well, the light of the gospel shone into our hearts and we were saved. So, we can look a little bit further at, at Satan's background. We know that in Isaiah 14, verse 12, it says that how thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, the son of the morning, how thou art cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And then the judgment, yet shalt thou be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So we have the five eyes there that are, that are often referenced from time to time and I've heard by way of humour, some people say that Satan had an eye disorder. They should have seen a, an eye specialist. But that's, that's the fact of the matter. He, he rose in pride. So there's a debate, again, just in the, the background to this question that's gone from my mind about evil and iniquity. There is a debate as to when Satan and the angels fell and when they were created even and when they were actually cast down out of heaven or Satan particularly, when he was cast out of heaven. Now certainly we know the Garden of Eden was a perfect place and that man had dominion until the temptation and the fall. Now once the poison of sin came into the world, the nature of man changed radically. We became sons of Adam. We became sinful, sinful beings by nature. And Satan became the usurper he took the authority he shouldn't have had. Now the sin nature of man since then has opposed God and the powers of darkness have opposed God's plan for man. And in Genesis 3.15, we, we mentioned it quite a bit at the time of the table of the Lord, judgment was pronounced on Satan. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So a great struggle then commenced between the forces or powers of darkness and the godly kingdom. And it starts with Cain. Cain was possessed, I believe, and killed Abel. Now I believe the same spirit would have been behind Pharaoh when he issued the order to throw all of the male children into the Nile. Or King Herod, when he ordered the uh, massacre of all the boys two years and below. Perhaps you could think of Haman. Haman wanted to wipe out the, the uh, people at the time of, of Esther. And there are many more, there are many, many types of this uh, evil um, working out of Satan's plan to destroy, destroy the line, as we were in this time in the, in the garden, is a temple to destroy the line of Jesus and to, to wipe it out. 
he obviously didn't want that prophecy of 315, this prototype gospel as it's called, to be fulfilled. And I guess he would have been surprised when the godly line did start with Seth and that scarlet line as it's called runs right through Calvary. And we know then that um, Satan was defeated, death was overcome, sin was overcome by the victory Jesus had on the cross, which we talk about each Sunday, because it's central to our faith, the work at Calvary, the great victory, the great victory that's our victory as well. And um, Satan was effect, in effect defeated to a degree, I would say, but still allowed to have dominion over this earth and still allowed to have an impact on our lives if we choose to be on that side of rebellion. But there's salvation, thank God, as we heard this morning, in trusting in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. But Satan still has a role to play until the time when he's dealt with, ultimately, at the time of judgment at the end. So, there's a little bit of a background again there. Now, who are Satan's enemies now? He knows from Scripture his destination and where he's going to end up. But he still views, I believe, the born-again Christian, the true Christian, and the people of Israel. God's first chosen people, the Jew, as their enemy. And he will do all in his power to wreak destruction, to take down as many as he can with him. And you can see that work out in the world now. I mean, we know about persecution, we know about genocide, and all those things have gone over the ages. We know about the irrational and unfounded hatred there seems to be for the nation of Israel, which works out through, through governments and through, through individuals. So he's still very much at work. And, uh, you know, he will do as much damage as he can before his time of reckoning comes. Now, even though scripture says, again, it's interesting, scripture says that, you know, Jesus will return and reign on this earth for a thousand years in Jerusalem. He also says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Yet he still proceeds and still um, pursues his destructive agenda in the world in the background and these forces of darkness and powers of darkness which I've just mentioned in the spiritual realm this great struggle that's going on effectively for the souls of men I found it interesting too it's just something that just comes to mind that during that time of the millennium when Satan is bound that there's still the potential in man or the propensity in man to sin because many will still not submit to the Lord then and many will round up and join together in rebellion again with Satan when he's released after the thousand years. So, so there's something there about the element of the working of the spiritual forces but there's also something about the, the innate and internal wickedness there is in the un unregenerate man. So we have the potential I would think to be just uh, to be wicked to be evil just by our fallen nature. But to have the spiritual force of darkness working as well in concert just adds to it and makes things more complicated and um, more fraught with danger. So, just to go back now to the psalm. 
So who are the heathen and why do they rage? Now in David's day we're told that these are the idol-worshipping nations that were around Israel. Who are they today? Well I say it's a sinful, unbelieving word. Heathen I guess is, a, is an old expression used in, in older times. Certainly used in the King James which um, I happen to use. Maybe not in modern translations. Probably called the nations. But it's effectively the unbelieving world. The world that's rejected Jesus, the rebellious world that we see now. The sinful, unbelieving world that strives and, and, and um, resents and fights against Jesus from day to day. So we look around the world as a calculated, deep-seated and hateful opposition to all that's godly and to all that, um, that uh, Jesus has put in place and to his church and his people and to, to Israel also. And the question, I guess, is why? Well, it, it's answered in Scripture. It says that the eyes of the unbeliever have been blinded by the God of this world. Now, otherwise, I mean, what Jesus offers is so much superior and so far better than what we have in this world that under Satan's realm. And uh, people realize that. If their eyes weren't blinded, if they actually realize that, perhaps their choices and their consideration would be a lot different. So, it's interesting. It's interesting that, uh, you know, I guess we can give practical example in our own walk from time to time that we constantly witness to some people. You know, what seems so apparent and obvious to us as truth just bounces off people and um, there's no penetration. No penetration into the, the inner working, the inner being because their eyes are blinded as a shield as it were or, or a, a veil over the eyes of the unbeliever. And that's just part of the, the mystery of salvation too that um, you know, no one comes to the Father except the, they're drawn. And um, somehow God works on the individual to see that veil lifted and then you know, we have a part to play too. We have to believe. So it's, it's interesting. So this sinful unbelieving world it rejects Jesus. Excuse me, I'll just uh, reset my notes. And it's interesting too, I just wrote here, interesting uh, by, by, by aside, that those who hate Jesus, they're far more willing to show it than we are to actually talk about Jesus to others. So there's a, a, um, a drive or a propulsion within unsaved, unregenerate individu- individuals to lash out and to attack and to, to um, persecute, as it were. You know, whether it be mild persecution or right through to severe persecution, the believer, the true believer. And we can all, I guess, give testimony to, to having smart comments made and to, um, to you know, being re- rebuked or rebuffed or, or having the cold shoulder because we take a stand for Jesus. And I even know now when I'm when I talk to, to family, quite often there's a ridicule that goes with um, the unbeliever. and there's, um, It's an innate thing in them. They, they, they can't help it, I believe. It's, a, it's, it's irrational in many ways. It's a spiritual, spiritual thing that they, uh, they want to pull down the name of Jesus or, they, or as it works out in some ways, they want to be anti-Semitic or, or um, work out a hatred towards God's people. And it's, it's just the work of, of the enemy and the fallen nature of man, that he, that he is that way. Now I suppose we could ask the question again, should we get depressed by all of this? 
because of the condition of the world and because of what's going on around us. And my answer to that would be that if we're not walking too closely at the world, then it shouldn't be because we see the answer, we see what, the, what lies ahead. As believers, we know what the outworking and what the, what the final conclusion is. So we, we shouldn't really get depressed. We should try to see and use our influence to see as many saved as possible. But we know from Scripture that the world is the way it is for a reason and that it will get worse before the Lord returns. So we shouldn't be surprised by these things. We should be forewarned and forearmed as it were. And again, I guess we can consider the, the, um, the thought that we are just pilgrims passing through. It's not our permanent home. And we shouldn't put our trust in the things of this world. And as I said, ultimately the battle is for the souls of men. Now, we also see that word there, vain. So, what are the vain things? I've listed a few here that occupy people in this present world, or vanities, or vain imaginations. Here's a couple, but it's not, it's not exhaustive. Evolution is a vain imagination. So I would say to accept the most outlandish explanations and do anything to work around and deny the glory of God the Creator is a vain imagination. We see present-day gender confusion. Again, to contradict common sense, to contradict basic science and biology that we would all learn in school, and to try to go against what God has said that he's made the male and female, is a vain imagination. Homosexuality. I'm speaking hate speech now by saying this. It's an abomination before God. The attempt by two individuals of the same gender to come together that can't produce fruit and be fruitful as the Lord's commanded is in violation against what God has said. He's commanded us to be fruitful. And you can't do that. So that's um, it's a mock and it's a, um, it's a raising of the fist against what God has said. Abortion, the murder of the innocent. And it's been in the past people have said it's likened to the worship of Moloch or putting material things or putting your life or your comfort or your career, your opportunities, whatever, above the life of an individual, the sacred life of an individual. It's murder. But yet we convince ourselves by vain imagination that it's a, it's a, a human right or, or it's a, a right of a woman to do that. It's not. It's, it's murder. And they can go on. You know, divorce, what God has put together, let no man take asunder. He never intended for it to be divorce. It came because of the hardness of the hearts of men, according to Moses. Artificial intelligence, those who think they can create life. And it all goes back to the lie in the garden that you can be as gods. So we have a vain imagination if we can think that we can be gods, yet we are actually created. There is a creator, and we are created beings. And um, the fact that we are created, and there is a creator, it puts a moral obligation on us to submit to what he has said we should do, to submit to his moral laws. That's the issue. People don't want to do it. They cast off their, their cords as they see it because they believe they haven't got freedom. They believe they're being restricted. And we hear so much about liberation nowadays. Perhaps it started with um, women's liberation, there's liberation theology, and there's, there's all sorts of things. Man, in his attempt, basically, we can disguise it by words, but it's his attempt to actually cast off godly regulation and control 
and borders that have been put for the protection of the individual. There's protection when we follow God's way. Outside of that, there's danger. It also says the leaders, effectively, they've ganged together against Christ. They've taken counsel together. They've ganged together against Christ. So who are the leaders? The leaders are, the leaders are culture, media. It's everywhere now. Education. I remember recently, I don't know if anybody heard of the President Duterte, who's the President of the Philippines. He railed out against God. He, he mocked God publicly. Or the, the president of, or the leader of China, Xiang Ping, I think his name is. He wants to cr- crack down the Christians, so they're using all technology now to monitor the individual, to monitor what's going on inside churches. What he wants is he wants people to worship the leader and worship the party ahead of the Lord. Or you could think of um, perhaps North Korea. Worship of the father, the grandfather, the man before him, that generation of, of evil rulers, but not God. I think recently there was something, I think I mentioned the other day, there was something on, on um, the news recently and uh, concerned a man who went to North Korea and he'd taken video film and he had filmed you know, typical scenes of day-to-day life in the countryside and in the city and you know, his comment was that people in the city have a far easier time than the people in the country. But anyway, he could do this. But the only question he was asked when he came into North Korea, it was okay for him to have the camera. They checked the technology of the camera that it wasn't you know, something that maybe they could construe for spying. But the only question they asked was, do you have any Bibles? So, there's this ganging together against God. And it works itself out in those sort of ways. You can do what you like. You can behave as you like, but don't bring Jesus into it. And don't bring the Word of God into it. They conspire together with the irrational hatred of Israel that I just mentioned. And there's a growing anti-Semitism around the world. And we know what lies ahead for Israel is very tough indeed. Many, many are going to die before the great salvation comes to that nation when when they call on Jesus and they look on the one who they pierced, they've got to go through some very, very tough times. So God, I'll just say it again, God's bands, they're not bondage. And his commandments are for our protection. And uh, it's interesting, you can think of this um, great glee there is that people have been liberated. Great to be liberated, but not so great to be open to destruction. If they only realize that, that's, what, that's what's happening. You're breaking down the protections but you're opening yourself up to destruction. And we can see that work out in society. And many of the signs that are in the society now that we see have happened before. There's nothing new under the sun, as, as the book of Ecclesiastes says. Kingdoms and nations have collapsed before when they've gone into immorality and gone against what God has decreed. And that's what lies ahead here. Judgment ultimately works out, and there is a price to pay for um, going against what he said. So let's go on now to verse 4 and where the Father starts to speak. So the scene changes from all this raging in the world, all of this strife and all of this opposition to God, to what the Father has to say. The throne room of God, the secret place. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow 
of the Almighty. God, we know, does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked because in Ezekiel 33 verse 11 it says, Say unto them as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but if the wicked turn his way from his way and live, turn ye, turn ye from your evil way, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Now it's interesting that he uses the term he laughs. Well, why does he laugh? I, mean, it's, I guess it's a personification or, or um, a rep, I mean, the Lord of Spirit. But maybe it's a way of conveying to man at a surprise at how many have chosen the wide path instead of the narrow way. So he reacts in surprise. He's made a way. He's made it in such a manner that there's, there's no excuse for anyone to have to go to destru- destruction. Uh, perhaps he remarks, how amazing is this that man is so silly that he doesn't avail of the wonderful thing, the wonderful salvation that's been made available for him. So we're foolish to think that we can oppose God and get away with it without being judged. It doesn't happen. It's delayed and it eventually works out. Rulers and kings, these people that we've spoken about in the first three verses, they're only there by the authority of God. He raises up and he brings down. And if you look at Daniel 2 verse 21, it says, and he changed the times and the seasons. He removed the kings and he set it up kings. He gave the wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. And he can judge rulers very, very effectively. He'll use them for his purpose, but he can judge them. And we can see in scripture, there are certainly times where God has judged an ungodly ruler who perhaps he's used previously for his own purposes. And you only have to think of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, in pride and arrogance, started to gloat about what he had done and how great his kingdom was. And he ended up like an animal, it says, out among the animals and, and uh, his hair unshorn and totally out of control. We can even think of um, Herod. It's mentioned in the books of Act, book of Acts, I should say, in 12, Acts 12, verse 21. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. God doesn't want his glory taken. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. So God certainly can judge and he's in control. And um, you know, he, we don't always see the reason, we don't always see the purpose why apparently wicked people are where they are. But it's for a purpose. And he knows the beginning from the end. Now the wrath of God it will be fearsome. And I think we should thank God that in verse 5 it says, he just speaks in his wrath. But thank God in his mercy he hasn't acted out on it yet. Because when the wrath of God comes, it's, we won't be here. It's going to be a, ter- a terrifying time for those who are in the world at that time. And uh, people joke about it. People laugh about hell. You're witnessing to people in the streets, oh, I'd love to be in hell, partying in hell. But the wrath that comes before that, it's um, not going to be good. And I'm sure they would change their tune if they, if they knew it lied ahead. So the wrath of God is fearsome. Earthly kings and rulers come and go, but God wants sinful man to know that he has set up his king upon his holy hill in Zion. 
That's a very clear statement there. So when you wonder, when you look at the news, why is there so much turmoil and contest over the Temple Mount? Why is it controlled by the Waka of the Jordanians? Why are there riots there? Why do the um, Israelis want to go there? Or the Jews require armed guards? Why is there you know, an announcement made by UNESCO that Jerusalem is not really below, you know, the, the city of the king, but it's a, it's a Muslim site? You know, there's a reason for it. And it's the opposition. The opposition to what God has said. So God has said he's put his holy king on Zion to rule. And he will rule from Zion, as we said, for a thousand years when the millennium comes. So, so there is something special about Israel. It is a fallen nation now. There are a lot of bad things happen in Israel. They believe in their own strength. It's got a very, very high abortion rate. There's a lot of um, opposition to Christians in Israel. But God has made a covenant with Israel. They're still his people. And he will work through and work out what he said he will do for them. So I'll just add to that that it's a really deception. And I think it shows the uh, cunning and the subtlety of Satan that uh, the church, or many churches would believe that they replaced Israel, and that Israel no longer has a place for God, with God. He set them to one side for a season, during the time of grace, but he will deal with them again. And we haven't replaced Israel, we've been grafted in, the Bible says in Romans, we're not replacements, we're grafted in. And uh, the gospel came first to Israel. Now we go to verse 5. A change of speaker. What does the sun say? That there's something powerful about a decree. When Nebuchadnezzar, we read in the Bible, or Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, made a decree, it wasn't to be rescinded. The ruler wasn't to lose face. So decrees were very serious things. So more so the sun's decree. Thou art my son this day, I've begotten thee. So what a decree that is. The eternal son not created, but begotten. As I said, we get a glimpse into the Godhead here. And, you know, I would say we can't fully understand that. It's like those elements of Calvary and what went on at Calvary, we can't fully grasp. We will, perhaps, one day when we meet Jesus face to face. And um, I think that many men in the past have tried to delve into these things and come up with reasoning that's, that um, has led them astray. Uh, we just accept what he says. There's certainly two persons of the, of the Trinity of God there, or the triune God, that are interacting. Elsewhere we have three. We have the Spirit as well in other places. And, you know, there's, I believe, multiple scriptures and sufficient cases, although it doesn't use the word Trinity, to demonstrate that we have a triune God. And to present him otherwise, I think, is wrong. I think we shouldn't uh, go too deeply into some of those things because we don't fully understand them. We have to accept them. We can only deal with Scripture and what's written there as it, as it stands. This Lord, Messiah, Jesus, or the second person of the Trinity, however you should, you should title him, he is the only means by which salvation is available to man. Again, we, we, we talk about that on Sundays. There is no other way. And we could quote John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. 
Now, that's a very, very exclusive statement. And the world, and other religions try to work around it. Many um, soft or, how would I word it? Perhaps um, unbiblical Christians would try to step, step, that, step aside of that and say, oh, you know, we all serve the same God. All roads lead to, to God, but they don't. So we can either accept what he says by, by these exclusive statements or we can go our own way. So Jesus is the only way. Jesus was obedient to the Father and he came as a man to this world to redeem the lost to the uttermost parts. And he died at the hands of godless men. And the plan for that was a plan that was made before the foundation of the world. And I just wanted to read a scripture I hadn't put down here just to show that. In Acts verse 4, And we can see there that perhaps we just read from 25 because that just demonstrates what I said earlier on that David is the author of Psalm 2. It says there, Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. So again, in those days as in, as in the present time, people gathered together against Jesus. And I like verse 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Jesus wasn't put up against his will. He wasn't captured against his will. He wasn't crucified against his will. He willingly gave himself as a sacrifice and it was something that was planned planned long, long before the foundation of the world, as scripture says. So, so that's an amazing thing to, to dwell on. So in that first coming, we know that Jesus came as a suffering servant. He laid his life down. He willingly took the punishment that we should have received. What about his second coming? when he um, breaks them with a rod of iron and dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, Werner last week talked about the potter's vessel and he was talking about the, the, the scrolls of Isaiah that were found in the cave. And I think the shepherd boy was throwing stones and he threw a stone into the cave and the vessel shattered. And that's how they came across those scrolls. So it's a good picture of a mighty judge and a mighty king and, and uh, what he does. The works will be shattered and it will be broken in pieces and they won't be put back together again. So in the second coming, he's coming as a conquering king and he will break the impenitent with a rod of iron and he will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And I think it's good to, re- to read Revelation 19 which talks about that time. Just have a look at verse nine, Revelation 19 verse 11. And these are very powerful verses I think to read aloud. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and a righteousness he that judge and make war his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen white and clean and out of his mouth go a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
and he treaded the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I'll just jump back to what I made me mention about Islam earlier. It really is such a serious thing for Islam to say that God has no son. There's no salvation without the Son of God. There's no salvation in Islam. Again, I'm probably guilty of hate speech again and saying things that the, uh, the world will frown upon, but the truth has to be pronounced and declared. All roads don't lead to salvation. There's only one way. Now we come to David again. David's words of advice. The last three verses. It's wise to give good counsel. It's wise to receive good counsel. Now David speaks to the kings and judges of his day who are in rebellion. And he urges them to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And we know Proverbs 1 verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now if we apply these scriptures to us here today, we would all have to say we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3 verse 23. All of us here have cast off restraints at some point and have been willfully disobedient to what God has commanded. We have done things our own ways. Therefore, verses 10 to 12 can apply equally to us. And we need to pay attention and regard this warning. Now, he uses the term there to kiss the son. We need to kiss the son, or in other words, we need to submit to Jesus as the saviour of our souls. Now, I mentioned at the start that there is a salvation aspect or salvific aspect to the psalm. The mercy of God is coming through here. That um, the opportunity is still there to submit. If you haven't done that today, that's the gospel. Submit to Jesus. Accept what he's done and do it his way. Obey his word. You know, the Catholic Church and um, you know, I come from a well, what was, I would say, a, a staunchly conservative Catholic country and a, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and in those days there homosexuality was on the, the books as outlawed. Divorce was outlawed. Abortion would not be spoken about. Yet things have turned around full circle since then. And, uh, you know, the, it certainly hasn't helped, but the, the great sins of pedophilia and the abuse of children by, the, by the, uh, the Catholic Church that were kept in secret for years and became revealed, like as they are in Australia through these, um, you know, royal inquiries, has been used by many. And I can see, I can see like, why people might feel that way to completely turn and reject God. Now, certainly, I'm not saying that, that the salvation is in Catholicism, but certainly there was a, a knowledge of God, and perhaps a respect of God in that country. Now it's turned full circle. And, um, you know, you could, looking at the news when the abortion debate, or the abortion legislation was carried, to see young people actually gleeful and crying and, and waving their arms in the street with joy, that they now had the right to actually murder. And just thinking back to that generation, you know, perhaps 20 to 30 year olds or whatever, 
were probably saved, many of them would have been saved, not in the sense of saved and salvation, but their lives saved by the fact that 20 or 30 years previously, in the 1980s, the um, last attempt to bring in abortion was rejected by the majority of the people. So it's a pretty frightening thing to see people glee that way. And um, you see it nowadays, I guess, with the uh, same sort of behaviour, with the same-sex marriage and, and this um, public glee and, 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 and joy and, and the waving of the fist as it were in God's face. And uh, that's a frightening thing. That's something that to me augurs or, or, or shows that we're actually at that time when his anger perhaps, his, his anger perhaps or his wrath is becoming to the point where it's tipping and it's more than just a little bit kindled. And uh, judgment may not be too far away. The world is ripe for judgment. I'll just turn on my... Can you hear again? And the use of the term perish from the way is interesting. The early church, they were known as the people of the way. Jesus is the way. So, thinking in the context of, of a lot of people I've spoken with, the people that are lost, the people that are raging, the people that are so rebellious and so in God's face, they really, really need to hear the gospel. They don't want to perish from the way because um, it's going to be a fearful thing when they have to face Jesus the second time when he comes. And uh, that's the only way we can actually view it is with compassion and a sense of wanting perhaps to do our best you know, in God's use, in God's service to try to convince people and persuade people and to see their eyes open to, us, to the dangerous situation, to the highly precarious situation they find themselves in when they take that position. So I'd say surely we're at the point of wrath. And is God's wrath, is it more than, more than a little kindled? You know, it seems things go on in the world from day to day. And I mentioned earlier about judgment often being delayed. You know, it seems that people take the grace and the mercy of God casually or with indifference. But it will surely change. Judgment will surely come. And, um, you know, perhaps we have to frighten people by pronouncing the gospel in that manner. You know, the gospel of the kingdom, that the king is coming back and uh, he's coming back to, with a rod of iron. And he's coming back to rule and to reign. And uh, every knee is, as Gemma prayed earlier on, every knee is going to bow. Even the ones that are waving their fists now and, and um, shouting all these things, they're all going to bow before the Lord. So just to, to come to a conclusion, you know, in this raging world, our peace and our refuge is only found in Jesus there's never going to be peace in the world. There's never going to be a um, you know, man is going to attempt and continue to attempt what he did in the times of the Tower of Babel. The attempt to bring in a one world order. The attempt to bring in you know, a, a one world army or whatever peace reigning throughout. It's never going to happen. The only peace, the only peace we'll find in the, the midst of the storm, as the scripture says, is going to be in Jesus. And as the world draws to a close, it's going to get worse, it's not going to get better. And we need to prepare ourselves for that. It's going to get a lot worse. But the grace of God still abounds more than sin. 
and we're still in times when that grace is available to those who would like to avail of it. And again, you know, when I, when or anybody behind the platform here would be delivering the word of God, we always want to bring it back to Jesus and to the, um, the salvation message and you know, just to, to say that you know, if you don't know the Lord today, if anything I've said about what's coming has disturbed you and you want to be saved out of that time, well, come and talk to, to Pastor Werner or myself or one of the, the believers here and they'll, they'll only be too happy to, to explain in more detail God's plan of salvation. I put here, do you think that the wrath of God is just an Old Testament concept? Perhaps when you read these things, you know, we look at what happened in um, perhaps the parting of the waters and the, the drowning of Pharaoh's army and all these things, you know, which to show perhaps the, the more um, miraculous side of God's working in, 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 in judgment and in wrath. And we think, oh, these are Old Testament things. But these things will come again. There will be judgment, there will be wrath. And I just conclude by, by, by going back to verse 12. And considering verse 12, who or what are you trusting in today? Your abilities, your riches, your job, your friends. And as that verse says, if you want to be blessed, put your trust in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Lord, we just thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord. It's uh, very relevant to us, Lord. Same yesterday, today, and forever. You were the same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that's as we conclude, that, that we'd have things, Lord, to meditate on. Those, Lord, who need to put things right, Lord, or, or backslidden, Lord, not doing what they should be. Now is the time, Lord, to put it right. And um, you're only too happy, Lord, to those who come, Lord, with a repentant attitude, Lord, to uh, receive them. And those who don't know you, Lord, I pray, Lord, that to take the opportunity today, before it's too late, tomorrow's not guaranteed, to uh, accept what you've done for them, to be saved and washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Thank you, Lord. God bless you. There's tea and coffee now in the room next door.